0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest and greatest in Canadian politics? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University will join us to talk about that. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has begun a three-day visit to Canada amid calls from Ukraine asking Canada to cancel the turbine exemptions. What should Canada do? And our weekly Washington report with Reggie Cicchini. We covered DeSantis news, takeaways from Mar-a-Lago, and Trump investigation eases 2024 election doubts about the democrats it's all coming up in the bill kelly podcast and it starts now
1: today on the bill kelly show on 900 chml
0: to begin with as we uh, always do on monday we circle around to uh, federal politics and uh, what's happening in our nation's capital, and what's happening with the governing party and uh, the opposition. And as always, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for being with us again today.
2: Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, I guess the the headline here is the Prime Minister is is busy for the next two or three days. Uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is here, uh, which should ordinarily be a good news story. Any time you're going to sign a deal and there's an energy deal and Canada could benefit from this economically, uh, sounds like a big win-win, but uh, this whole thing is surrounded by controversy, isn't it?
2: It is. I mean, I think ultimately it's still going to be a good few days for the prime minister in the sense that he's he's coming off of his vacation he's back in the public eye now this is going to be a an opportunity for him to be seen as a a kind of leader on the global stage at the same time as he's hitting uh, a few points points to visit in canada and he's going to be seeing a lot of people and so i think people are going to be looking at this and saying this is an opportunity for canada it's a miserable time in the sense that this is coming you know, largely as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. And so that's where we get the kind of, this is a complex thing in the sense that he can't just kind of go up to the microphone and be delighted to announce this fantastic new partnership between Canada and Germany, because it's not that simple. It's also because Germany is in, is under a crunch now because they need to get away from their reliance on Russian oil. But what Canada can do in the short term is a lot less than what we might be able to do in the medium to long term. And so there is some degree of kind of he's he's got to find the right way to bring this message forward in a way that doesn't make us look you know too too excited about it but at the same time you know shows that yes this is an opportunity for canada
0: and he's going to have to do some juggling here. I mean, that's that's what's happening on the uh, the, the the East Coast. But uh, there are problems with China, too. And I think we touched on this briefly last week about this Canadian delegation that wants to go to Taiwan uh, on a, what they call a trade mission. Uh, the Chinese ambassador has weighed in on this. I guess that's to no surprise to anyone. Simply saying, look, you saw what Nancy Pelosi did. Don't provoke us. Don't go there. Uh, and Judy Scrow, who's the chair of this committee, has said we will not be intimidated uh, so, yeah. th- which kind of sounds to me like they're going to go, and kind of sounds to me like there's probably going to be some sort of consequence. Is it really worth it?
2: I mean, like, I think it's it is a diff- difficult spot. I mean, the the prime minister and. like Minister Jolie they don't want to be in the position of telling a parliamentary committee you can't do something what no matter what it is right like the committees have to have accountability and they have to have autonomy in order to be able to do their job and so if you've got the executive saying don't go visit there because you're going to cause problems for us it looks heavy-handed and it looks like the committee is not in control of itself and so that's not a good strategy going forward on the other hand as you say like if this ends up being a kind of public relations thing. And the committee is kind of wanting to show that it's autonomous and wanting to show that it won't back down. Okay. But there's consequences of that, especially given, you know, what happened with Pelosi going. And so, yeah, I mean, like it's a judgment call. I don't know if this is going to end up, you know, going to fruition or what, but I think everybody kind of wants to show there is autonomy to these committees kind of is not going to be pushed around. It's not going to be told what to do by China, but this very prickly balancing act. And you know, not wanting to have have this sense that we can't we can't do anything, lest China um, flex its muscles, right? And so this is a this is a, a kind of a tiny issue around whether a Canadian delegation goes to Taiwan, that shows this larger issue in terms of global security and how we're going to manage China.
0: From a, a practical standpoint, though, uh, what good uh, can a parliamentary committee do by going to Taiwan? I mean, they're not going to make any trade deals there, but, uh, you know, yeah. that's that's higher up the ladder with those sorts of things are going on. So, uh, I mean, is, is this really a photo op for them or is there something concrete that can come out of this? <sighs>
2: Well, I mean that's it like I agree with you there's not going to be de- there's not going to be deals made there's not going to be decisions made and the committee wouldn't have the authority to do that anyway and so in some ways when you see a prime minister you know going to to visit and you know, the, like, and for instance, seeing the Prime, Prime Minister Trudeau and Minister Jolie and other ministers going to Ukraine, for example, we talk. you and I have talked about whether those visits really make a difference. It's a different type of thing. But there is a sense that yes, world leaders need to be in solidarity with other world leaders who are under attack. And especially given the context of this situation. But this sort of visit really is, you know, it seems to be kind of showing that that Canada's is thinking about um, ta- what's good for Taiwan and is taking a position that is absolutely not in line with China's. And this is an opportunity to show that to show solidarity with Taiwan. But does that really mean anything? And is it you know, is it is it worth the cost of doing it? But again, at the same time, do we want to be backed into a corner where we feel like, you know, China expressing displeasure is enough reason for us not to show up to do something that we want to do. So it's complicated.
0: Well, and you, we know they're still angry at the U.S. for the Pelosi visit, and they still blame oh, yeah. the Biden administration. But. Uh- as much as the, there's a, a, an acrimonious relationship between the Chinese government and, and the United States, uh, they tend not to want to push back against the states, Not, but they will push back against the state's allies, and hey, that's us, uh, and we're just giving them further, I guess, cause now to be right near the top of that list. I, I don't know what's going to happen, yeah. but I mean, you know, there could be trade sanctions, there could be any number of different things, but uh, I just, I'm just wondering if it's worth it, but you know, it sounds like it's going to happen anyway, doesn't it?
2: Yeah and I mean it's interesting that sometimes I think we when we talk about what Canada does globally there's a sense that like does it ever really matter <laughs> and, and as you say right like they there was a reaction to pelosi's visit but China is going to be a lot more hesitant to push back against the US than it is going to going to be to push back against Canada and so the the risk benefit analysis for us given our position on the global stage is going to be different, right? We only have so much swagger. And so it, do we want to use it by taking the, you know, by taking a trip like this, that's actually not going to have much consequence good or bad.
0: Other story that f- surfaced last week, and it didn't get a whole lot of play, and I was a little surprised by that, uh, could, could, well, there had been rumors anyway, because we've talked an awful lot about Indigenous rights and, and the terrible uh, discoveries, of course, about unmarked graves, et etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, but one of the things that did come up a little while ago, of course, was the fact that the Canadian government basically... Uh, told the Catholic Church, forget about that payment that she was supposed to do. That was all part of the Truth and Reconciliation recommendations. Uh, We're talking $25 million here. And uh, I guess some documents that were unearthed just a little while ago, uh, Laurie, essentially indicated uh, that it was the outgoing government, the conservative government after the 2015 election that seemed to sign off on that. And that's raised a few eyebrows.
2: Absolutely. And I mean, especially given everything that we've been talking about over the last several months and years especially in the context of the papal visit that we just wrapped up and that we've talked about on this program um there is there is a real sense of you know what what are the concrete actions that are going to be taken and i think there's a disconnect for a lot of people between what the government says it's values and priorities are with respect to to reconciliation and what the actual actions are. And so this is going to cause a lot of trauma and it, it, you know, as, as lots of things have. And I think there's, there's going to be, I mean, right now we're still at a point where parliament is not sitting, but I wonder whether, um, these sorts of things are going to be taken up in earnest again when parliament comes back.
0: Well, because what it does is open up some wounds all over again. Uh, yeah. First of all, uh, if the minister did this, and that's what seems to be the indication, that was always rumored, but now there seems to be documentation about this, Parliament wasn't sitting then either, and they just lost yeah. the election, so what's a minister doing signing off on something uh, without anybody's approval, or did, you know, I mean, technically Stephen Harper wasn't even the Prime Minister, I suppose, I, well, I mean, I suppose in one regard he is until he isn't, I get that, but, but that Parliament was dissolved, so, uh, you know, you're yeah. questioning that. And it also, I think, probably, you know, even deeper wound is is the fact that the Catholic Church really kind of dropped the ball on this. I mean, they were told about the $25 million, and they said they, they'd only raised $4 million and they were asking parishioners to yeah. do it. Uh, they don't need to, to raise money. Uh, the Catholic Church is, is doing quite well financially. Uh, but what was the, I, I guess the question again, the, the, as we asked then, what was the motivation for the government to basically let them off the hook and sign this document saying, don't worry about it?
2: I agree with you and I absolutely agree with your point that at that point when you're in a position of a caretaker because you've lost the election this is not the kind of decision you should be making and not you know that's not something that applies just in this specific case like the caretaker convention will will say like you are not the person with the confidence of the house and therefore you should not be making these kinds of decisions that have major implications these are major policy decisions that have huge budgetary implications and so don't do it and so i'm with you i don't understand what the motivation would have been at that point
0: well uh, more to come on that i'm sure when they get yeah. back to work uh, up on the hill uh, which segues right into the last thing i wanted to talk to you about this morning uh when they do get back to business uh how much pressure is there going to be on jagmeet singh to uh, as as one uh pundit suggested to step up uh and 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 face trudeau on some of these key issues he he's been criticized and you've talked about this uh, for the for months now since this deal was signed with the, the trudeau government to basically prop them up till 2025 uh but Singh's starting to make noises right now, like he's just not too happy with the deal and, and would mm-hmm. consider backing out. Is, is he sincere?
2: So, I mean, it, to me, this deal has always been about political strategy for both sides, Like, I understand completely that there are significant policy implications if the deal goes ahead and Canadians get pharmacare and dental care out of it. Those are huge pieces. And so I'm not denying any of that. But at the same time, the parties could do those things without forming a deal like this. They can absolutely decide to cooperate on policy pieces and move them along because together they form a majority. So I think this was always really about the government being able to avoid some of the scrutiny in Parliament that can take a long time. And to to avoid having the NDP, you know, really kind of hammer them over things that they can't necessarily control, right? Like the the realities of the cost of living and in the context of a wider global inflation crisis, there are things that governments can do, but only so much. So I think the liberals are really hoping to buy some quiet time and the NDP were hoping to avoid an election, which is not going to be a great thing for them because they don't have the money to go. So is Jagmeet Singh going to be able to start pressing more on Trudeau now? if the realities around wanting to avoid an election are still there, right? Like, does he want to go to election and give it to Pierre Polyev? I doubt it. He's going to be in major trouble with his supporters if he does that. And so I think the question is whether there's a sweet spot for Singh to be able to build enough leverage around these issues and to be able to gain authority to position himself as somebody who's really fighting for these issues. That's going to be really hard because Singh has been invisible. Like he hasn't been around at all. And so I think he, To be honest with you it might be a bit too late for that and if he starts you know kind of making a bunch of noise about how he's not getting what he wanted out of the deal i don't know that people are listening to him at this point
0: well and like you say the consequences of this are are, are, could be monumental if there is another election i don't think anybody wants that well Except for pierre Polyev, i 'm sure uh, hmm. but but they're, they're going to they 're going to be pressuring the nDP I would think too, because they they want to dr- pull the plug on this thing. they want to go to the polls uh, right now and 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 he 's aching to do that. you can tell with some of the comments that he 's made right now, so it's it 's going to be difficult, I would think for Singh to resist uh, that, but at the same time as you told us last week i mean if if pierre Polyev becomes the next prime minister after the next federal election whenever that might be uh, you can forget them he, they're not going to you know play footsie with the ndp on a lot of these issues quite the contrary i would think
2: oh yeah i think in fact one of the ways that pierre Polyev has been quite successful is appealing to hard-working people who do not find that they have enough money at the end of the month. And they're finding that what they're dealing with, in terms of the cost of gas, the cost of living, is not getting any better. And so I don't know, Bill, if you saw the video that Pierre Polyev just put out. And it's, I think it's called like breakfast with Justin or something like that. And sort of ostensibly, he's having breakfast with Justin Trudeau. But I think that this is absolutely brilliant political strategy. He's having breakfast with you. Right. Like he's having he's sitting there kind of trying to have a, its as though he's having a conversation with a listener, with a reader, with a watcher. And he's talking to you in very plain language and in very kind of even soft tones about, oh, God, you know, I really understand what's going on here. And the prime minister doesn't understand it. And so I'm interested to see what kind of game the liberals are going to come back with here. Their failure to define Poliev is a mystery to me. I don't get it.
0: Well, it's not as if they're not giving him enough information, too. I mean, Paulie is right out there, uh, but you're yeah. right. They, they, There has been no counterpoint to that, and maybe that's to come. I don't know. Uh, we'll should see. be an interesting week anyway. As always, Laurie, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again, and uh, look forward to our next conversation.
2: Me too. Take care, Bill.
0: Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull uh, from Dalhousie University with a look at what's happening federally here in this country.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to circle
0: back to something I was talking about with uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull just a couple of minutes ago. Uh, and the prime minister uh, is, as we mentioned, with the German chancellor today. And, uh, well, the, the modus operandi here is that they're trying to sign an energy deal. And they talked about this, I guess, at a meeting a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but there's an undercurrent to what's going on here. And, of course, that's Ukraine. Uh, because this whole thing seems to be centered around certainly the the turbines that Canada was fixing and sent back. Uh, But at the same time, I think the Canadian government probably would rather the focus of the next two or three days uh, be the deal that they're supposed to be signing uh, with the German chancellor. Emily Judovski has some details for us.
2: Olaf Scholz and his vice-chancellor touched down in Montreal Sunday evening for a visit that includes scheduled stops in Toronto and Stephenville in western Newfoundland. Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland was on hand to greet the dignitaries on the tarmac. Scholz and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau are expected to sign a deal for Canada to supply clean hydrogen to Germany, as well as discuss the war in Ukraine. The visit coincides with renewed calls from Ukraine for Trudeau to cancel a decision to allow the return of a turbine being repaired in Montreal for use in a Russian pipeline that supplies natural gas to Germany. Emily Jovesky, the Canadian Press.
0: So, how do you find a balance, or can you even find a balance between what Canada should be doing here? Because the turbine issue is the uh, the sword of Damocles, I guess, that's hanging over this whole thing. To talk about this, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor of political science at Carleton University. Uh, good morning, Elliot. Great to have you with us again
3: this morning. Thank you. Good morning, Bill.
0: Uh, the statement from the Prime Minister's Office uh, says, on a you know they take great pain, I guess, to wordsmith these things. Uh, the visit will advance a shared priority between Canada and Germany, including our unwavering support for Ukraine. Well, and of course, the response to the Ukrainian government is: if you're supporting us, then don't give them the turbine back. Uh, this this is a very, very touchy, complicated issue, isn't it?
3: Yes. Uh, from the Ukrainian view, it's not complicated at all. No, uh, the it's very straightforward in terms of the broader picture, it becomes complicated in a way that I don't think has been underlined sufficiently. The primary goal of getting those gas turbines back was to maintain NATO unity. The fact that the U.S. government weighed in on this at the time when this first came up a month ago uh, has not been underlined, and it should be. The primary goal of Joe Biden and the U.S. government is to maintain NATO and Europe's, unity in the face of this unprovoked attack on Ukraine. And they consider it, and apparently we consider it, uh, worth providing sufficient gas supplies to Europe so it does not get divided over the issue in order to maintain that unity. And therefore our government and supported by the U.S. and certainly by Germany is that, yes, let's let's get ahead, go ahead with this. We have to have that gas in order to and the broader picture, maintain the struggle uh, in support of Ukraine. Ukraine doesn't see it that way.
0: Well, and then and as you mentioned, let's you know we have to, I guess, go back in a few months anyway to the beginning of this uh, this invasion of Ukraine by the Russians. Uh, Germany was kind of late to the party, weren't the Elliot? I mean, they they were supportive, sort of. Uh, but there was a concern there because they were concerned about repercussions because they are so reliant on Russian energy. And and as soon as they did make a stronger commitment, of course, uh, Russia didn't turn off the tap, but they certainly reduced production, didn't they?
3: Yes. Uh, one of the achievements of Mr. Putin is the creation of what I'm calling the new Europe. The fact is that uh, Germany had placed their bets quite a long time ago. It looked like a good bet that integrating... Russia, uh, post-Soviet Russia, into Europe was a good thing. And to do that, you'd have this complex interdependence, as us political scientists like to say. And that way, the the Russians would not have any excuse or opportunity or incentive to go to war. They would become cooperative partners because there would be an economic interdependence in all kinds of ways, starting with much to the advantage of Germany cheaper gas supplies reliable gas supplies. That gamble hasn't paid off as we are now seeing. The fact that Germany, as you said, was reluctant, didn't know how to react initially, has really turned on a dime on this. They've, uh, they've become much str- uh, stronger. They're saying, okay, we're getting off that dependence. Not only that, we are helping lead. Remember, they are the largest economy in the EU, uh, mm-hmm. and in many ways, under Merkel anyway, a leader of the EU, Uh, SO THEY'RE SAYING, OKAY, WE NOW AGREE WITH EVERYBODY ELSE. Uh, RUSSIA IS A THREAT. WE'RE GOING TO DEAL WITH THAT THREAT. WE HAVE TO GET OFF OUR DEPENDENCE ON THEIR uh, GAS SUPPLIES. BUT IT'S GOING TO TAKE A LITTLE WHILE. SO WE NEED IT uh, IN THE SHORT TERM FOR THIS. AND THAT TAKES US BACK TO THE EXEMPTION. IT WAS GERMANY ASKING uh, CANADA, PLEASE DO NOT, uh, DON'T don't GIVE THE RUSSIANS THE EXCUSE. uh, I'D LIKE TO TALK ABOUT THE WORD BLUFF HERE, BILL. Who's bluffing whom and who's getting away with it? Uh, Russia's bluffing. If they, um, if you don't give those turbines back, turbines back. If we don't have them, then the Russians will use that as an excuse to turn off the, uh, the supplies to us. Let's call their bluff. We'll get those turbines back to them. Then they, if they still deal with us in that way, everybody will see that they are bluffing. That they really had no intention to not use, uh, what, basically, energy supplies. AS A WEAPON AGAINST EUROPE. THAT WAS the, uh, THE BLUFF AT THE TIME. WE NOW HAVE A SITUATION WHERE THE UKRAINIAN GOVERNMENT AND THE ABLE REPRESENTATIVE HERE, THEIR AMBASSADOR HERE IN TOWN IN OTTAWA ARE SAYING, OKAY, YOU called their BLUFF. THEY DON'T WANT THOSE TURBINES. IT WAS ALWAYS A BLUFF. THEY DON'T NEED THEM, THEY DON'T WANT THEM. Uh, WE, CANADA SENT THEM OVER TO GERMANY, GERMANY WAS GOING TO SEND THEM ON TO RUSSIA. RUSSIA HAS NOT, AS OF TODAY IN ANY EVENT, ACCEPTED THEM ANYWAY. So if they don't need them and don't want them, it was always just a bluff. We have called their bluff. We have now called their bluff, so don't supply them with the turbines. Don't violate the sanctions regime. The sanctions regime is critical to uh, from the uh, sanctions regime by the West, by everyone else uh, against Russia. That's critical. We have to maintain that unity.
0: But and the bluff was a big thing. And I know that even on this side of the ocean, of course, our uh, minister, well, the prime minister and certainly Foreign Affairs Minister Jolie, uh, we, we're using that line. That was one of their talking points. Uh, and and as you said, there's there's some sense to that and some credibility uh, to call their bluff and show the Russians for what they are, which we have done, I guess. But to what end, Elliot? I mean, nothing's changed.
3: Well, that's that's the bottom line today. And um, the fact that I'm citing them doesn't mean I agree with it. I'm, I'm trying to present the context oh, sure. I understand. Going on yeah. in front of us today. But uh, here's today's comment from the government of Canada, uh, from our our energy uh, minister, Wilkinson. Our expectation and our hope is that the turbine will actually go back to Gazprom, and it will eventually come into service. So the Canadian position has not changed on this, nor will the Ukrainian position saying, um, you're dancing around this. But what that really means is, YOU'RE VIOLATING THE SANCTIONS REGIME, WE NEED THAT SANCTIONS REGIME, WHAT WILL HAPPEN uh, TO to THE NEXT DEMAND? IF YOU'RE VIOLATING IT FOR THIS, YOU'LL VIOLATE IT FOR THAT. AND MEANWHILE THE WHOLE THING IS BEING NOW WRAPPED UP INTO A BROADER PACKAGE OF THIS BILATERAL VISIT uh, BY CHANCELLOR SCHULTZ TO CANADA TALKING ABOUT AN ENERGY DEAL. HE WANTS CANADA'S LNG AS WELL AS THIS EXCITING NEW THING, HYDROGEN AND uh, ammonia PROCESSING, AND IT'S GOING TO TRANSFORM NEWFOUNDLAND, SO THE CONVERSATION OVER THE TURBINES, I THINK, IS BEING, um, I WON'T SAY COVERED UP OR PAPERED OVER, BUT IT'S LOSING THE CENTRAL FOCUS THAT UKRAINE WOULD LIKE TO MAINTAIN.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk about the Ukraine perspective for a second, if we could. Uh, you know, we're heading up towards Independence Day, where Ukraine uh, will be celebrating, although, of course, given the situation over there, it's going to be a rather subdued celebration, I would think. But there is, as we've talked about in the past, a very large uh, Ukrainian-Canadian population in this country uh, that we're very happy to see the Canadian government be the first to recognize Ukraine, uh, one of the first anyway, and, and certainly to show their support initially when the invasion started. There's a, a lot of... Disgruntled Ukrainian Canadians right now because of the Canadian action to do with the turbine issue here right now. They and and even President Zelensky, as as we've mentioned, uh, is basically said. You keep saying well, you've got our back. Well, this this is not what somebody does when if they they have our back. Uh, you know, you you're really aiding and abetting the enemy that just invaded us a few months ago.
3: Yes, and we're at the 6 month anniversary on Wednesday of the invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this uh, that quick blitz, blitz, blitzkrieg that uh, the Russians had in mind in a an You know, they were going to decapitate the polit- political leadership of Ukraine in, in, in a few days, and then they were going to merge it with Russia through uh, a phony referendum. Clearly that didn't happen, and we're into our current slog, and the nature of that war seems to be changing. Uh, one of the, I think there's two things about the war I'd mentioned, but very quickly on this. Uh, one is that Now Ukraine is operating behind enemy lines. They are taking the fight behind enemy lines. We've seen that in Crimea several times now. The uh, mysterious explosions have been followed by more mysterious (laughs) explosions. So it's quite clear now that Ukraine is operating not only in uh, Crimea unexpectedly and really doing serious damage there, but also elsewhere, perhaps across the border into Russia itself. Uh, some mysterious blowing up of um, ammunition dumps. Also, they're taking behind the enemy lines of targeting the Wagner group. Or it's really the Wagner group. Uh, now they're talking about, well, we'll set up a Mozart group. That's a side story. But the, they are operating behind uh, enemy lines now in a way that puts the Russians more on defense and that allows Ukraine to play offense in a way they haven't been doing. And the second major thing, I think, to talk about in terms of the war is, of course, the nuclear issue. and and the world's, you know, Europe's largest electrical plant powered by nuclear uh, generators, five or six of them there. And there's another plant elsewhere. The Russians have been occupying that, but forcing Ukrainian uh, technicians to maintain it. Now, apparently, they want to reorient. They want to basically steal the electrical power and reorient it perhaps to Ukraine or into Crimea or into Russia. But they apparently are also using uh, that as a, that plant is a fortified place from which to launch missiles and attacks because knowing you can't fight back there there's an extremely yeah. dangerous game going on over nuclear issues in Ukraine the un secretary general has been there uh, the head of the atomic energy international atomic energy agency has been there saying let's make this a demilitarized a demilitarized zone around this nuclear powered electrical uh, plant and uh, that's just been turned down by the Russians.
0: Not surprisingly, uh, because they haven't played ball on any of the quote-unquote negotiations that have gone on uh, previously to this. Uh, they seem d- determined that they want to carry through uh, with the invasion uh, f- for their stated goal, of course, to, to rid Ukraine of, of Nazism uh, and, and to get some of the ne'er-do-wells that they've been talking about. Uh, a quick sidebar issue here, if I could, Elliot, the the, uh, the death of a very prominent daughter of a very prominent Russian who was the nickname being Putin's brain and, and within that the incident of course the Russians immediately blamed Ukraine for that in some way shape or form uh, first of all uh, it seems ludicrous that doesn't seem, there's no credibility at all to the accusation at all uh but but is there even did, is Ukraine even capable of, of of that kind of espionage and that kind of uh, behind the scenes activity
3: we know that Ukraine has been operating effectively, as I just was talking about. But yeah. a car bombing outside Moscow does not have; it doesn't doesn't seem to me to have the the fingerprints of Ukraine on this particular assassination. There's some new group has just been announced uh, on a Telegram channel. There was one Russian member of parliament who opposed Russia invading Ukraine. He then defected. He's now living in not defected. He moved out for his own safety. He's now operating out of Kyiv, and he has a radio program. He said, my telegram channel has been contacted by the National Republican Army, the, their NRA. They are claiming victory on this. Uh, they are claiming that they took undertook this, that partisans are now going to be carrying out additional activities inside Russia in opposition to Putin, uh, in an effort to bring Putin down. So perhaps we're seeing a, a new development uh, inside Russia, certainly uh, the particular assassination was audacious, uh, murderous, of course. But it, the fact that the ideological justification or the coloration for that Mr. Putin projects of you know great greater Russia was echoed by this uh, this ideologue whose daughter she shared it. Apparently, this uh, was uh, meant to attack the father, not the daughter. They were switched. They switched cars at the last minute. So. Uh, something additionally mysterious is going on and murderous, and all of this is, in a way, side effects and ripple effects. We talk about turbines to start this. We're caught up in this in a tiny way, this far away, but there are ripple effects of this invasion, and we just are seeing one more of them.
0: And I mean, the accusation that Ukraine was somehow involved in this. I mean, I guess it serves two quick purposes. One, of course, to try to, you know, demonize the, the enemy to, as far as the Russian people are concerned. But I guess also, Elliot, this is another attempt by Putin and his regime to, to basically say everything's fine over here. We're, we're, everybody's behind the war. Everybody's behind Putin, uh, which is not the truth at all. There's a lot of, uh, of, of, of insurrectionists uh, in there that were never happy with Putin. Uh, a lot of them are jailed. Some of them are poisoned, but that hasn't deterred them. And then there's, there's some internal conflict in that country.
3: Yes. One of the successes of Mr. Putin was to put down the internal opposition initially. There were uh, a lot of demonstrations against this war in the opening phases of the war a long time ago now, six months ago, but uh, the domestic security forces have forcibly put down those uh, and the state media propaganda apparatus has successfully blanketed the country convincing Russians who have no other source of information that this indeed is a justified war against Nazis, as you put it uh, accurately a moment ago. By the way, as a side note, uh, he, that vocabulary is now being directed toward uh, <laughs> some of the Bal- one of the Baltic states. That's very ominous. Oh, there's Nazis there too. So I'm I'm watching that one. But the um, yeah, the reality is that uh, he's gotten away with it until now, more or less. But we are seeing at least some possible domestic or internal dissent uh, as represented in this assassination
0: uh worth watching i mean this is changing almost by the day to see what's been happening here and the reaction to it Uh, that's why it's so important that uh, we get your perspective on this elliot thank you so much for sharing some time with us today i really appreciate it
3: Oh, it's so it's good to talk to you bill
0: Take care. That's uh, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University.
3: You're listening to the Bill
1: Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Lots of news going on south of the border. Well, you know, of course, the Mar-a-Lago investigation uh, with the raid on the Trump residence and the implications of that. To talk about that and lots more, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. Uh, before we get into some of the politics of this, Reggie, uh, breaking news that uh, that you've just discovered, I was just announced, I guess, is uh, one of the, I guess, most popular and well-known names and maybe one of the most controversial figures as we've been dealing with this pandemic uh, over the last two and a half, three years, Dr. Anthony Fauci is stepping down. What's the story there?
1: Yeah, uh, this this kind of coming out within the last um, maybe 15 minutes or so, and we knew that Dr. Fauci was going to call it a career but not likely to, until closer to the the general election around 2024 or early 2025 and we now find out that Dr. Fauci intends to step down from chief uh, as chief of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in December um, you know far far sooner than than what we had originally heard from him. He joined uh, the the institute there in 1984. he joined the National Institutes of Health uh, in in the late 1960s. So this is nearly this is more than half a century of uh, of public service as being one of the, Um, You know, preeminent go to voices and doctors for the health of Americans. And uh, and the White House just put a statement out not more than a couple of minutes ago, uh, saying, quote, the United States of America is stronger, more resilient and healthier because of Dr. Fauci.
0: Uh, which should be his legacy but part of that legacy and roger you've been down there covering this uh, ever since the the controversy hit with the uh, with covid uh was he was a foil for donald trump uh, he, he ended up uh, you know clashing with trump on many issues uh and and i never got down in the mud with a lot of the republicans that said some pretty ugly things about him but he was he was a class act and stuck to his professionalism uh but uh, you can't talk about covid without talking about the 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 sometimes fauci versus trump uh controversy as on so many different policy issues.
1: Yeah, and I think that that was a clear indication of how reality and politics were clashing so heavily in the United States in that you had a disease that was running rampantly around the United States that the former president and his administration was either trying to ignore or simply brush to the side. Uh, and you had the, the the doctors, you had the leading experts on how to get through these kind of crises being drowned out by politics Uh, and you're right that he was kind of um you know he took the brunt uh, of republican anger here and still does i mean the last time he testified before congress he once again got into it with Rand paul uh who again tried to kind of politicize the career surrounding um dr fauci but you know he was he played a crucial and essential role in conveying the realities and the severity of what was happening during not only uh the covid crisis but also during the aids crisis during uh the ebola crisis during the zika crisis in the u.s this is somebody who has had his finger on the front lines of getting a country through a medical crisis and he was able to push through the politics to get the information out there it didn't register with everybody but at the end of the day the words that he spoke uh were meaningful uh and and the reason that this country is where it is right now when it comes to this pandemic is in part due to what dr fauci had said
0: and and from your perspective as as somebody who's covered all these stories uh he was as you say he was a target of of a lot of vitriol from republicans and from right-wing media social media tv networks etc but he never ran and hid did
1: he he was he was always out there and stuck to the message and he made himself available yeah, absolutely. Uh even in the midst of the of the Trump administration when, you know, he would be actively pushed back on whether it was by the former president or members of uh the the inner orbit from Donald Trump, he did not shy away from you know, not calling people out by name, but calling rhetoric out. Uh, you know, we have to go back to the time where the former president said maybe you can just inject bleach inside of you, and he was one of the first people to come out to say we are not going to do that. Here's how we are actually going to uh, get this country to move forward. So he may have been a lightning rod for Republicans, at least, but at the end of the day, uh, he knew the realities of the situation, uh, and and you know he 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 persevered uh, through numerous administrations to get to where he is now this this will be um you know the end of a of a milestone for him uh, and for for this country
0: uh, especially in light of the fact that so many other people, experts uh, for the CDC and other places like that, seem to to be submissive to Trump and simply just gave into that, and Fauci never did. Anyway, the star there is, uh, Reggie just reported to us, uh, uh, Anthony Fauci stepping down at the end of this year. Uh, let's talk about the political landscape, if we could, Reggie. I mean, over the last number of weeks when you would join us, uh, we've talked about what a challenge it would be, and I, I think that's probably an understatement for the Democrats to do well in the upcoming midterm elections. Then, of course, the raid happened at mar-a-lago and and the controversy about that Uh, the latest polling seems to indicate that uh, you know we're not guaranteeing a democratic victory but uh, things are looking a little brighter
1: for them than they were a few weeks ago yeah and you can chalk that up to um, a couple of big late season wins for democrats especially when it comes to uh, that inflation reduction act that is going to dump billions of dollars into the economy by way of trying to lower prices well at the same time also kind of revitalizing some parts uh, of that failed um, build Back Better plan that had uh, uh, environmental aspects to it as well, because there are now billions of dollars going into the climate fight, and this is a huge victory for Democrats to be able to roll with going into the midterm elections. You know, everybody looked at at the former president with these struggling and sagging popularity numbers, and at the end of the day, because his team, his party was able to roll out this victory. There are now questions of how big, if there is, will this red wave be uh, in the time for the midterms? Even the fact that you had um, uh, Minority Leader McConnell speaking last week publicly, that because of some of the candidate qualities being put out there by the GOP, that there's a real risk that they don't win back the Senate in the midterms. There's some big problems here for Republicans, and it comes from these big gains being made by Democrats.
3: Let's talk
0: about the GOP, if we could, of the Republican Party. I mean, politically, Reggie, this guy, there only has, there can only be one big dog. You know, in in the pack, and Donald Trump, for the well, since he went down that escalator, at, you know, at Trump Tower so many years ago to announce he was going to run, has become the big dog. Uh, Ron DeSantis is is maybe the challenger here he hasn't officially declared that he's going to be a challenger but uh his name keeps coming up time and again and my understanding is he's out stumping for republican candidates now too
1: yeah he absolutely is uh and i think that he is uh he is the one to watch for in the months to come, and I use months because we need to find out what's going to happen with these investigations into those documents uh, that were taken from Mar-a-Lago. Does this lead to a potential criminal charge? Does this lead to a more, you know, trumped up, for lack of a better word, um, series of investigations into the former president that potentially dogs his ability to maintain uh, the vice grip that he has on the Republican Party? beyond midterms. I think if the president, if the former president is maybe starting to kind of fade when it comes to support, Ron DeSantis is going to be that person to watch. And there are several reasons for that bill. Number one, while he may not be Donald Trump, he is embracing Trumpism. He is uh, allowing for things that the former president did that was, um, you know, enjoyed by the base. He is not standing in the way of that. And while he doesn't actually come out and back things that Donald Trump says, or he doesn't, uh, you know, get intricately involved in kind of putting his voice on something like the abortion battle. He also doesn't push back on that and lets politics play out in his state, which ultimately ends up benefiting him. So what he's doing is playing to the MAGA group, while at the same time, trying to play it safe with maybe hesitant, skeptical, moderate Republicans who think, well, he might be a better version of Donald Trump, because he kind of believes in it, but he isn't Trump. So maybe he's different. And I think that's why Ron DeSantis is probably the one to watch after midterms.
0: But he had a setback this week, too, didn't he? Uh, that, where, uh, that controversial law that they passed in the Florida legislature uh, that basically banned any discussion at all about LGBTQ rights and a number of other uh, different issues. Uh, a judge has pretty much said that's unconstitutional and, and slammed that. Uh, that that's got to be a bit of a... a, a, a Knife in the back, I guess, to DeSantis, uh, because he was being loud, lauded by the extreme right for, for actually, you know, pushing a bill like that through the legislature.
1: Yeah. And I mean, look, he pushes back on woke culture uh, in Florida. But at the same time, you know, while it's a minor defeat for him, he also made the point of saying we look forward to being able to argue this in court. And I think that's, again, where he differs from someone like Donald Trump, where if somebody gets in his way, he'll throw everything at the wall Things will get confusing, and then he has a hard time getting himself out of messaging. This time around, you have the governor saying, Look, uh, this was thrown at me as a kind of political curveball, and we are going to fight it. We are going to make our message. Heard. And by putting this in the court, it allows for a streamlined message to come from the governor from the Florida government into why they want to do this. And then ultimately, that puts it into the eyes and minds and hands of uh, of the voter. So they're, you know, he's using this strategically to his benefit, despite the fact that it's a loss right now. Uh, this will be something that he's able to now argue and keep in the public spotlight for weeks and months to come.
0: Let's circle back, if we can, to the, uh, to the right on Mar-a-Lago and some of the implications on that. And I noticed on Sunday, of course, on the on the political shows, the uh, Republicans are using a lot of the talking points, including uh, Trump's assertion initially that all that stuff in, in Mar-a-Lago was declassified uh, and, and said that it was a blanket declassification. Now, Some experts have said you can't do that. John Bolton, I guess, over the weekend, uh, who was uh, Trump's national security advisor for a time, Uh, said he had had no idea what he's talking about and said it's almost certainly a lie. Now, Bolton was never a big Trump fan anyway. But is is that washing with people? I mean, the fact that Trump is is still coming up with excuses and they're still using these, these
1: things that he was well within his rights to do what he did? Well, I think you have to look at it like, was this a standing order, which very likely did not actually exist, but was this a standing order to allow things to remain unclassified when it was the FBI planting the evidence, when it was already uh, declassified by the time it got there, when it was, uh, you know, government services administration accidentally packing up the wrong boxes and delivering the wrong boxes? Is this just another thing to kind of muddy up the conversation and at least keep the base engaged? It's very possible here uh, because there are reports now that uh, there are conversations that are starting to take place uh, with former members of the Trump administration to see if this alibi exists, if this standing order for whatever that might mean exists. And you're right, it is likely not something that could be real because there is processes that are in place in order to declassify material uh, because national security can be put at risk. And, And a former president at the end of the day, if they're working from home, taking stuff with them out of the White House to go and work remotely for a temporary time being, if they're still president, you wouldn't need to declassify that because you are still the president and you're on the job. So there are questions that are still remaining and circling uh, for this. But at the end of the day, you know, he's getting a boost from these raids because it's keeping the base engaged. And at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to be released publicly. uh, But the former president, Is using this as not only political leverage, but as financial leverage because he's making millions off of this uh, in fundraising.
0: We keep, I guess, you know, we're so focused on this, and I understand because it's it's such a, an interesting story about what's going on in Mar-a-Lago and what's in those documents. Uh, there is, as you've been reporting, still an ongoing investigation about about Republican behavior during the last election uh, that, that Trump still says that he won, including the one that's all going on in Georgia. And Lindsey Graham uh, just lost an attempt, I guess, to, to basically get exempted from testifying in front of that.
1: And I think that the Georgia election is ultimately going to play, um, a, a significantly larger role here in what happens when it comes to the former president, because all eyes, at least from the legal world that we've spoken with, have said, well, there may be civil investigations that are ongoing and there are continued investigations to what happened uh, at Mar-a-Lago. The fact that there are grand juries that are speaking to people, including uh, the former president's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, into these attempts to to overturn the 2020 election, Georgia might be one of, if not the final nail in a coffin, however this moves forward. Uh, and, and there has been Republican pushback to this. You're right, Lindsey Graham did try to push back on on having to to testify, and Appeals Court did block um, the subpoena uh, to Graham uh, in that uh, election fraud probe. Uh, I think that the Republicans are going to try to kind of whitewash this a bit and move beyond. Uh, the the Georgia issue because they understand that there are legitimate political uh, concerns and issues here. So much so that most of the polling for what's coming up in Georgia in the midterms is keeping it now as a likely or safe democratic state. And that is not something uh, that Republicans are keenly looking forward to. So they're trying to avoid it while at the same time understanding that this could come back to bite both them and the former president quite hard uh, in the months to come.
0: Well, a very fluid situation on all fronts, uh, which is why we'll be watching, of course, where you're reporting on Global National in the uh, days ahead on this. And uh, and again, thanks for the uh, uh, the breaking news about Anthony Fauci. Interesting stuff. Reggie, as always, uh, thank you for the time today. Take care, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Global's uh, correspondent in the uh, U.S. Capitol. Boy, that's a hotbed of news stories and twists and turns on this. Uh, with the Trump aspect of this, the election aspect of this, and, of course, what's going on in the state of Florida.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free.